I want to welcome and introduce Vitalik to the conference. Welcome, Vitalik. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Happy to be here. Awesome. So uh, I was just sharing a little bit of, of the first time we met and where that was in time. And I think, you know, first, I just want to express my gratitude for, for everything you've done for the space and making things like USDC even possible. So thank you. Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, thank you for making uh, USDC itself happen. It's, uh, you know, been a really big contribution to the space for a lot of people. Thank you. We're excited and, and I think just getting started. So I want to come back to the th a theme that we're really thinking about here at the event which is this idea of kind of how do we move from speculative value to utility value. And I think it's something that has happened multiple times in, in the history of this space where people get over-indexed to speculating and lose sight of, of the utility phase. But I think right now it seems like is a really particular moment because there's so much attention on this. And I guess like as you look at where Ethereum is with the merge behind us, what do you think the next kind of critical layers or, or problems to be built are? And, and what do you think that does in terms of bringing utility at scale? So to me, the you know, most important problem after what, now that the you know, merge is done is uh, basically the scalability problem, right? I think uh, it's important to keep hammering on the uh, scalability as an issue because the uh, scalability uh, challenges really are central, in my view, to the you know, problems that are actually preventing a lot of the uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain applications that we dream of uh, from uh, going mainstream and that are motivating both centralization and uh, dominance of uh, some of the uh, kind of big money speculative uh, use cases that we're trying to move beyond, right? And I think uh, it's also a little bit easy to forget today because we are in uh, a bit of a bear market and uh, you know demand is lower, transaction fees are lower. But if you remember what things were like a year ago, right? It costs like more than $5 per transaction to use Ethereum. And it depends on how complex your transaction is. Simple stuff might have cost three to five. More complicated stuff might have cost 10 to 20. Creating a new contract costs some amount in the hundreds. So, you know, it was crazy. And I think it's important to just appreciate the uh, extent to which uh, just uh, the, like that issue by itself can uh, be a showstopper to an ecosystem, right? After the merge, the thing that we're focusing on as an ecosystem basically is um, you know, scaling uh, through this uh, roll-up centric roadmap, right? So there's these uh, layer two projects, um, you know, Optimism, Arbitrum, Starknet, Scroll, Loop, Loopring, the yeah, Polygon, you know, the list uh, just keeps on uh, going, that are trying to create these like second layer platforms that are more scalable Ethereum-like networks that live on top of Ethereum and inherit security from Ethereum, but have uh, used the blockchain in a uh, more optimized and more intelligent way so they can have lower fees. And then there's upgrades that are being planned to the Ethereum chain itself. Uh, so proto-dank sharding is, and then followed by full dank sharding. These are you no know, phrases that you'll hear in Ethereum research circles uh, that are upgrades that make the Ethereum chain itself uh, more scalable and more able to absorb the uh, load from all of these uh, roll-up projects, right? So after all of these, the Ethereum ecosystem's ability to absorb uh, and uh, process transactions will increase by a factor of like something like 100 to 1,000. Yeah. And that's going to be a big deal both to the uh, 
the kinds of the number of users and applications they can get on the ecosystem and the kinds of fees that they have to pay, right? Yeah. And so the question to ask is like, well, you know, given the applications that are possible today at you know, 30 cents to $3 a transaction, what kind of applications will be possible when we're talking about 0.3 to 3 cents a transaction? And I think the answer is quite a lot. Yeah, totally. I mean, I use the metaphor of like dial up to broadband and like like we are now in the broadband upgrade cycle. And like, you know, you really couldn't do like all the ideas people had for what you could do with internet apps. Like you really couldn't do them on dial up, (laughs) but but you can can start to do them. And so that's that's an exciting roadmap, obviously. And I, I think, we want to make sure that you know, USDC as a protocol is working, you know, seamlessly on all these all these layer twos uh, for that utility value. I want to change um, change gears a little bit and talk about kind of you know kind of what we're starting to see, which is as some of this starts to go more mainstream, there's just more laws and regulations that are coming and starting to interact with this whole ecosystem. There's laws and regulations that are you know we're starting to see governments have a view about how public chain infrastructure might might work or the roles of different stakeholders in it. And I'm just interested at a high level, as this becomes more mainstream at scale, what do you think of the sort of role of, of governments and policy with respect to how um, public chain infrastructure in particular evolves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a very uh, good and uh, I think important question. I, I feel like my uh, general hope is... Uh, I think the same as uh, what what uh, I think a lot of people in the uh, ecosystem have been uh, kind of hoping for the the uh, whole time, which is that the uh, base layers uh, can uh, should uh, hopefully be uh, left alone as uh, much as possible. Because uh, I mean, the challenge with base layers, right, is that they are global, and uh, if uh, one uh, you know. If one jurisdiction starts censoring them, then that just immediately yeah, makes them much less attractive to people in um, other uh, competing jurisdictions. And you know, you basically yeah, the hope is that the public blockchain space is a kind of humanity's escape from um, you know the splinter net uh, world. Yeah. And uh, if the space just becomes part of the splinter net, uh, then there's almost um, you know no point to it left, right? But at the same time, there's also the application layer, and uh, you know applications are the things that actually do things, and. Uh, some of the things that applications do uh, don't fall under regulations, and some of the things that applications do do fall under regulations. And I definitely think that like it's not realistic to expect the uh, entire space applications included uh, to uh, stay uh, unregulated. Um, just uh, you know, because I I think uh, I mean. The, the pressure to uh, regulate applications is going to be too strong and the kinds of uh, activities that at least some applications are doing just um, you know are under exist just regulated activities under um, existing definitions and and so I think uh, we my hope is that the uh, crypto space can um, you know both uh, definitely kind of fight hard to preserve the uh, you know the the neutrality and the you know, fundamental security of the uh, base layer but also uh, be proactive and actually, uh, you know, kind of participate constructively in the uh, conversation of, uh, like, you know, how different kinds of applications can be uh, regulated, and um, you know, what are the uh, ways of, uh, like, both complying with regulations as written and kind uh, of uh, compl- satisfying enough of the uh, goals that uh, you know regulators and uh, the, the constituents both do have and uh, might have. Uh, that you know, no, you know, hopefully, yeah. Both uh, satisfy their needs and uh, at the same time not or preserve the uh, properties of the applications that are the reason why people want to use them. Yeah, I think the more that like we can educate 
um, governments that public chains are like operating systems and it's a fairly, it's a neutral technology. And yeah, the, there may be financial applications and non-financial applications and others. It's really important for people to be anchored that. I think oftentimes people just assume everything that this is, is, is somehow like a financial application, which, which they're all not. It's sort of related, but I, I want to like step, step a bit back and talk about kind of when we think about this new infrastructure layer, this new base layer, I think one of the things that really inspired me getting into the space and I think has been important from what I can tell in, in some of the, the origin ideas around Ethereum too, which is sort of in what ways can we build an infrastructure layer that allows us to have like new building blocks for social, political, and economic structures, like new structures that we can build on. And I think, you know, back in college, when I was in college, I was pretty interested in the work of people like Herbert Simon and an economist and looked at sort of all the different ways in which organizations could be structured and the relationship of organizations to markets and other things. And I think embedded in Ethereum and embedded in this public chain infrastructure is this kind of social, political, and economic philosophy uh, that's there. And I'd be interested to hear you just talk a little bit about if there are things that you think could become possible in terms of social and commercial and even political organization that get built up on this infrastructure. And, and I think I'm, I'm thinking very long-term about this. You know, what, what, are, what, are we, what are the material that we now have to kind of work with as we think about new types of, of kind of microstructures and macrostructures that we can build from the ground up on public blockchains? Yeah, I think uh, for me, the uh, idea of uh, blockchains being this uh, like base layer that can be used to actually like build and enable all of these different um, you know incentive uh, structures and kind of institutions and um, you know like different ways of uh, managing you know both an economy and uh, kind of other aspects of society. I think is uh, definitely really fascinating again. And I do think that there are a lot of uh, opportunities for blockchains uh, to uh, be that layer. I think the uh, main big learning that uh, I've had over the last like, five years or so is this uh, idea that uh, if uh, we want uh, blockchains to be used for things that aren't basically just uh, uh, different versions of the concept of money and uh, that's it, then there needs to be some way for blockchain applications uh, to exist that are not completely financialized, right? And what I mean by this is that, like, you can't just, um, you know, create a currency um, and then say, oh, this currency is not intended to be a money token. This, can, this uh, uh, currency is intended to just be fun points and then expect that that's what the token is going to be, right? Because, uh, you know, if your token is transferable, then, uh, you know, there is going to be an exchange rate on Uniswap between that token and uh, USDC or ETH or whatever else. And it just is going to end up having all of the properties of a money token, right? So, and th there are a lot of uh, good reasons, uh, like very fundamental, uh, like game theoretic reasons that you can't just uh, wish away by, um, you know, having a slightly different culture or whatever for why, yeah, for things like governance, for example, you know, you, you don't want purely financialized infrastructure to be controlling it, right? Like there's actually a lot of problems with uh, governance tokens. And uh, if you want to make a uh, DAO, then you want the uh, participants in the DAO to be aligned uh, toward what the goal that the DAO is trying to accomplish. And, you know, if uh, you have a DAO that's uh, fully uh, governed by a, a token that's completely transferable, then 
like some of that token may well get into the hands of completely unaligned participants. Uh, some of that token may well get into the hands of participants who are willing to sell their vote to the highest bidder and just all of these issues. And uh, like basically everything just collapses into being, um, you know, some, either some kind of profit maximizing system or even it just, uh, you know, gets kind of bought up and uh, kind of hacked outright, right? Like there's, there's even been stable coins where somebody bought up like half the governance tokens and then made one proposal that voted for all of the money in the treasury to be transferred to them. And they made like a, something like $80 million or $40 million off of that. You know, it was uh, crazy, right? And so like actually making applications that are you know, non-financialized in the sense that they actually try to prevent this kind of collusion where um, you know, people do things in one application in exchange for some favor in another application. Like that's the big thing that blockchains need to be able to do somehow, right? And so this is where the ideas around soulbound tokens that I've been exploring recently come into play. This is uh, also really important for uh, voting applications, right? One of the uh, proper important properties for voting systems in general is this idea called uh, coercion resistance. It's this very strong form of privacy that says no one can see how you voted and you don't have the ability to prove to someone else how you voted, even if you want to make that proof, right? And the reason coercion resistance is important is it basically means it's needed to prevent people from selling their votes, right? And uh, so that's uh, like making that sort of thing actually possible within a blockchain space. There are projects that are trying to accomplish this. So there's uh, a lot of the recent projects that are trying to combine together zero-knowledge proofs with blockchain technology. So like Macy, um, you know, CLR funds, there's just this kind of growing list of them. I think it's uh, you know fascinating and I really support it. So I think those kinds of technological base layers are important. And I think uh, things like proof of community, proof of attendance protocol, um, you know, all of these protocols that try to actually put richer information about the participants on chain uh, so that other applications can start actually plugging into that, right? So, you know, if you want to issue a new token and you want to, like, issue a thousand units to every unique human, you should be able to. If you want to create a new DAO and you want the governance to be DAO, of that DAO to be run by people that have actually participated in some community, you should be able to, right? If you want to do something where, you know, you issue some tokens to people that have... Uh, completed a, a, a particular task like you should or you should be able to do that right uh, so yeah like creating these building blocks to enable that sort of stuff like that's something that I'm uh, really excited to see happen over the next two years I mean it's like the the surface area for experimentation in I call sort of describe as like corporate forms which are organizational forms right is is probably one of the most I think overlooked and most important pieces of of, of what's emerging here and I've always been interested in, are there different forms to how a corporation can exist, uh, how essentially the, the effort of organizing labor and capital together and how labor and capital can work together, how these entities that kind of combine labor and capital can, can work across each other and across the world. And there are um, you know, these sort of ideas of like syndicalism, which go back, you know, 100 mm -hmm. plus years. And it, it feels like, just as I listen to you and, and think about the, the building blocks, like syndicalism as an idea was, it was rejected, right? It was, it was, it was essentially like the joint stock corporation and, and sort of what we think of as sort of modern state capitalism was what 
kind of manifest itself and grew. And then we've kind of evolved now where we have this internet and we have building blocks like public chains and we have the ability to start composing new structures where new types of entities where people mm. can interact and where labor and capital and output can work and where you could you know, connect these different types of entities together in different ways. These are these sub-DAOs and, and DAO linking and other things. I mean, how do you think about that at a broader level? Do you feel like the, the experimentation that's happening now, the building blocks that we're talking about here are going to, over a, a longer arc, let's call it whatever, 20 years, are we going to be able to have a new shape to the very nature of the firm and, and the way like work and production uh, happens? I think uh, one of the really interesting things that's been really on the rise in the last uh, 10 years is the rise of like informal uh, cross-organizational collaboration, right? So this is like, you know, cross-organizational collaboration that's really, that is uh, not uh, kind of mandated by any kind of great grand strategy. You know, there isn't a signing ceremony, there isn't a treaty, there isn't a uh, anything sharing agreements, um, you know, no lawyers involved. It's just that, uh, you know, people in different groups that are working on similar things, just, um, you know, join into, you know, telegram chats or signal chats or whatever else. And, uh, you know, they uh, talk to each other about the stuff that they have to talk to each other and uh, you know, from uh, wherever they are to wherever they are, and they just get a lot of work done, right? So you know, I talked about uh, zero-knowledge proofs a lot, and like I talk about this topic a lot because I do think that zero-knowledge proofs are this uh, super important uh, technology that can uh, that's even really complementary with uh, blockchains in some very nice ways. But the other thing that's fascinating about the zero-knowledge proofs community is just how much it depends on that sort of stuff already, right? So if you look like Plunk, for example, right? Like Plunk is this uh, very popular zero-knowledge proof protocol that um, a lot of people use. It was uh, created by a couple of researchers from Aztec. And uh, uh, into that protocol, a lot of input came from uh, researchers from the Ethereum Foundation and from academic institutions. Those people also just had some... Uh, separate chats with people from Starkware. Then implementations of that were being made. One of those implementations was um, in uh, Circom, and uh, some of the people involved in that are now these days also involved in Polygon. So you know, there's just this kind of complicated mesh of uh, people from all kinds of companies, all kinds of academic institutions, all kinds of uh, countries. Like I think I... Uh, the, even the groups I talked about already cover the U.S., U.K., Germany, and Israel. And um, you know, I'm sure the list uh, grows even bigger, right? So this stuff happens, and it's just a natural way for humans to work together. And it, it's actually an efficient way for humans to uh, work together in this uh, more global context. So the next question is basically, yeah, you know, what kind of formal structures can we create that play more nicely with uh, this kind of approach, right? Like the, the issue that you sometimes get when uh, you have bad formal structures that and, and that is that these informal structures that are that just really make a lot of sense and they really work nicely with how humans just naturally wants to um, cooperate and um, is that uh, you end up getting this kind of friction and there's always a trade-off between um, you know being good at uh, just you know doing research versus uh, kind of satisfying each individual's for each individual formal organizations incentives and it's um, you know economic survival imperative and there's all of these kind of open source versus closed source uh, trade-offs and uh, sometimes people want to stay in silos and don't want to collaborate with each other and so the question is like 
can we create better formal structures that are more aligned with this kind of collaboration that's uh, happening already and uh, clearly is a, uh, a, a very good model for uh, cooperation. Yeah, and I, mean, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think like the laboratory is sort of the crypto ecosystem where, where we've seen a lot of this. And sort of the, the thing I'm interested in is when does this like cross over to quote unquote outside the crypto ecosystem? When does this cross over into coordination and creation and output that is in not just in the production of, uh, of software or other things, but like into even, you know, creating other types of services and products and, and so on. And sort of where do you see that? Do you see that mm. taking place? Do you have, or do you see examples yeah. of that already uh, kind of taking hold in a meaningful way? One of the uh, earliest signs of uh, that happening I'm seeing is in the uh, DSI movements, the decentralized yep. science, right? So, you know, we have projects like VitaDAO, and then they have the uh, Gitcoin grants, uh, decentralized uh, science uh, grants. You have people trying to create these uh, kind of institutions that perform the unavoidable uh, and a formal task of uh, you know, like allocating capital from a limited pool of capital because uh, all of these projects do ultimately need uh, capital to do stuff. But trying to do that in a way that's collaborative, in a way that encourages uh, cooperation across um, all of these uh, different institutions and then it tries to get different people uh, from uh, all kinds of places who have uh, relevant expertise involved. Um, so I think that's... Uh, Starting to make a lot of uh, interesting progress, uh, though. Um, you know, also it's uh, it's good that you get to see some of the uh, limits of uh, at least existing uh, DAO models, right? So, like one of the things that's interesting is that I think uh, the concept of creating DAOs that are not just token governed is uh, starting to gain legitimacy. Um, so, if we talk to the uh, the people in uh, Ukraine DAO, for example, like uh, they're they don't have a governance token and. Uh, they, uh, you know, have some very deep reasons for why they don't want governance token because they uh, really value the idea that the people who are governors are uh, aligned with the cause, right? Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that's something that more and more projects are going to realize. Um, one of the uh, ideas I, uh, I kind of pushed in that uh, recent post on DAOs that I made is this concept of, of uh, pod-based governance where instead of trying to decentralize by in a way that's still logically centralized, where like you still have this one singleton that's making all the decisions, except you just try to have 10,000 token holders voting on what the singleton does. Like you actually try to split the work up into right. individual teams. Totally. And um, you know, yeah, so that sort of stuff is like, it's good that that experimentation is happening. And I definitely expect we're going to see uh, lots of iterations on it, you know, both within the kind of crypto space for the crypto space and in some of these uh, adjacent spaces. And yeah, I'm uh, really looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. It feels like this is like super nascent, but like when I think about it, the kind of natural course is that there are going to be these new organizational forms that are at scale, that have very large numbers of participants that are producing, you know, in, in ways that a traditional multinational corporation or whatever would have been organized, not just to produce products, but but to organize around a lot of a lot of things. You know, I think one of the like questions that I think it relates back to one of the earlier questions I asked you, which is sort of like, what are governments going to say about all this? Which is at what point do we see sort of this crossover between essentially code is law and what happens in what's been, you know, developed and organized using a completely sort of on-chain based systems of of governance and incentives and the like when that sort of interacts with nation state law? 
And when the coordination work is global, right? The coordination work and it, it's sort of, it's participants from, could be 190 countries or, what, or whatever it is. And, and the substrate makes it possible to do all these things, but there aren't necessarily contracts. There's kind mm-hmm. of code is law contracts. And how do you see, do you think it's just, this emerges from like case law in different countries or what do you think the path is for these kinds of, of supranational on-chain organizational forms to, mm-hmm. to become sort of viable at scale and that, you know, entities, you know, quote unquote, in real life or, you know, other forms of traditional contract entities, corporate form entities can, can kind of interact with these kinds of organizations. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's uh, interesting to explore, to see how in the uh, 20th century, like the big corporations were a yeah, political technology in a lot of ways, almost as much as an economic one, right? Because uh, in the kind of the very dominant social pattern of uh, every employee working for a particular large corporation and, uh, you know, being in a yeah, particular f- uh, formalized marriage and like all, all of these uh, things, they yeah, make society very legible in the uh, kind of seeing like a state uh, sense of the word. And uh, they, they do a thing, you know, they do enable very particular forms of tax collection. They yeah, enable very particular forms of regulation. And the... Yeah, Internet in general, like even, you know, forgetting, forget about the crypto space in particular, just the, the yeah, internet in general, I think frustrates uh, that kind of enforced legibility. And that's uh, definitely going to be uh, discomforting for, to uh, people who want, uh, who are, are either used to that kind of legibility or who just like believe in that kind of like, you know, structured uh, kind of institutional style uh, vision of, uh, you know, providing force and, uh, managing things in society, but I think it's a yeah, necessary transition. And it's, uh, it's just obvious that these uh, kind of uh, these uh, newer and uh, less legible ways of uh, working together are just like better forms of collaboration in a lot of cases. And uh, no, the yeah, different forms are going to adapt. I think uh, there are different kinds of uh, adaptation that uh, work in different situations, right? So in the, I mean, this question of like, how to regulate DAOs, like that's just going to have to have a lot of uh, case-by-case law involved, right? Because like there is the concept of an uh, unincorporated uh, partnership, but the challenge with DAOs is that they have this this uh, sliding scale of involvements, right? Where you have people who are involved 100% of the time, you have people who are involved 10% of the time, you have people who are involved only by holding tokens, and then there's people who hold like you know 11.3% of all the tokens, and then how often do they vote? And uh, it really frustrates attempts to create like clean separations between um, you know the directors and like major shareholders and employees and everyone else. And uh, you know there are case laws basically going to have to uh, figure that out uh, somehow. One of the things that I think uh, could make that the these kinds of transitions easier is that there are forms of uh, you know both regulation and uh, taxation that are not as uh, dependent on legibility, right? So, uh, like for example, I'm a big fan of land value taxes, right? Um, one of the uh, economists uh, that I've uh, got to know gotten to know recently, I'm a big fan of. Uh, his name is uh, Lars Dowsett. Uh, he has this a site called uh, GameOfRents.com. That's uh, just uh, an excellent introduction on uh, you know, like why land value taxes are a really good idea. But uh, one of the uh, interesting side benefits of them is that they are like very low on legibility because 
you don't have to know what people are up to. You don't have to know what people are doing with their land. You don't have to, um, you know, know like what all of the different things that people have and like why why they're doing them. You just have to be able to estimate land values. And you can estimate land values at a fairly macro scale. You need a little bit of visibility into the economy. And, um, you know, it's uh, also at the same time a very uh, good way of uh, raising a lot of money, right? Yeah. So, if, yeah, so like these, like I think uh, being low legibility is like this good heuristic for like good like principles for like basically how to create you know regulatory and like tax and then political responses to how people organize that are uh, very future proof and uh, that aren't going to just get um, you know overturned in like fifteen years when people invent yet another a new form yeah. of uh, working together. Yeah, so I think. Uh, there definitely are ways, and uh, I think uh, the 21st century is definitely not going going to have to look uh, very different from the 20th, but I think uh, the, the stuff can be figured out. Yeah. So I uh, just in, in closing, closing thoughts and kind of building off that, I, mm. I think this is, I think, the invention of new fundamental political, economic, social systems, and it's happening, and we're building it on top of technologies like Ethereum. And super grateful for everything that, that you've been doing and sharing your thoughts with all of us today, Vitalik. Thank you, you so know, much. Thank, no, yeah. thank you so much for organizing this conversation, Jeremy. Absolutely. Absolutely.